All right, uh, children up to the age of three can go to the back at this time. And for us in here, we're going to continue in the Gospel of John. We are in John chapter 18 today. And uh, before we start on our text today, I just want to briefly remind you of what we talked about last week because the two passages um, that we are going to cover in these two weeks are intertwined together. And uh, it's important that we make the distinction of, of, of the, the two separate passages. Uh, but last week we talked about uh, grace upon grace, and it was the story of Peter and Peter's denial of Christ. And it's a, the famous story where, you know, Christ prophesied beforehand that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed twice. And uh, we, we went into detail with everything that was involved in that. And we saw some things that, uh, you know, that Peter either forgot to do or, or he refused to do. And it led him to his downfall and the fall of his temptations. And uh, those things, you know, we're, we're no different. We have to be careful of, of what we are doing and not doing. Uh, we need to be connected to the vine. Uh, that's most important for us not to stumble and not to, be, uh, not to succumb to temptation. But uh, the, the big lesson that we learned from last week is that even though Peter sinned against the Lord, uh, he was forgiven and he was restored. And uh, we learned that for us, there's grace upon grace available to us in Jesus Christ. So we looked at John 18, verses 12 through 18, and then verses 25 through 27. And as I said, um, our passage today is, is inter, intermingled with, with this verse. Today we're going to look at John 18, uh, verses 20 to 14, and then 19 to 24, and then 28 to 32. We're going to look at those three separate verses because... Um, those three verses deal with the trials of, of Jesus. Um, so we're, we're dividing Peter's story from the trials of Jesus before he is uh, executed. So let's turn our Bibles to John chapter 18, and let's start with verse 12. It says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for uh, the people. And now we skip to verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I say to them. Then they, then they know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And then we read verses 28 through 32. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled. But God, uh, oh, but could eat the Passover, excuse me. Verse 29, so Pilate went out outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. 
This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And that is the word of the Lord. Amen. So, first things first. One thing when I read this passage and I, and I look at the, the trials of, of Christ, it makes me think about myself and how when things don't go planned, as planned in my, in my own life. And I think that we can all agree with this. When things don't go as planned, uh, we sometimes complain that, that things are unfair. I think that's pretty accurate, right? Amen? I mean, every one of us have done it. We, have, we, we expect things to go a certain way. They go a different way. And we're upset about it. And, you know, we, we think everything is unfair. Life itself is unfair. And this is especially true whenever we are experiencing suffering from persecution. Uh, when, when someone is coming against us, uh, when we're being falsely accused, when we feel like we're being personally attacked, uh, we feel like that situation is not fair, and we can even drag it out even further and say, well, just life is not fair uh, altogether. But let me ask you a question. What if the purpose of your life was to suffer unjustly? That was the whole purpose of your life. You know, we talk about purpose, finding purpose. You know, what, what are we here for? As Christians, we understand that we're here to honor God, right? That, that's what we're here for, to honor and serve God. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, right? Ephesians 2.10 tells us that. You know, so, but what if your purpose, the purpose of your life was to suffer unjustly at the hands of other men in order to save a people who did not deserve it? How many of us would sign up for that? Not many of us would go willingly to that, right? For us to suffer and then for others to benefit from that suffering who don't deserve it and sometimes don't appreciate it. Sounds pretty familiar to us because we know that Jesus signed up for that. Our Lord and Savior not only signed up for it, but he did it perfectly. He suffered injustice for the sake of God's elect. When we look at these trials, it's, it's one trial after another of injustice. Injustice is a big topic right now. Right? When we talk about social justice, we talk about everything else that's going on in this world, <clears throat> it seems like everybody feels like they have been, um, they have suffered against injustice one way or another. So it's something that I think we can all relate to, but when we see it sometimes in the world, it's, it's not true injustice. But I can tell you what we're seeing here in Scripture and what we're reading about in Scripture, that was true injustice. Because Jesus Christ had no fault in him at all. He had not sinned. And yet he was being treated like he had. So when we talk about injustice, this is where we need to look. And, this, and, and to see Jesus go through that suffering, but there was a purpose behind it. His suffering was for God's elect. His suffering was for us if we believe in Jesus Christ. And we benefited greatly from his suffering. See, in our passage today, I, I want us to learn about the details of how Jesus suffered and why he suffered. One fair trial after another. And the conclusion that we're going to come to in the end is that we will see that Jesus suffered injustice at the hands of man. Why? So that the elect of God could be justified through his righteousness and also through his suffering. That was the whole point of it. 
So when we look at these trials, when we read them in Scripture, we must know there was a purpose behind it. There was a point to it. And it all plays a part in our own salvation. And, uh, you know, we're in the Christmas season right now. We're celebrating the birth of Christ and the fact that God has given us grace in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we look at this passage, it's us celebrating the fact that God was treated unjustly so that we could be justified. That's an amazing thing. So when we look at this passage, there's um, a couple of things that I want us to see. First of all, in the passage that I read and all this injustice that is going on in these trials, there's the depravity of man and then there's the grace of God. And those are both uh, overwhelmingly present in both in, in, in these in these verses. First of all, let's talk about the depravity of man. Um, we see that all the way in verse 12 that Jesus was arrested and then he was led away. And right after he was arrested, the soldiers led him away to be tried in the Jewish court of law. Now, this, this trial was anything but a standard trial. Okay? It was anything but standard, and it was egregiously, uh, egregiously unjust. Verse 13, it says, First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So last week we established that Annas was actually the high priest at the time, but that he had been removed by the Romans. And it's not very clear as to why he was removed, but he was removed from that post. And that was very odd because the high priest served for a lifetime. But Caiaphas comes in, and Scripture makes it clear that, that this was not an ordinary situation where Caiaphas comes in and he's high priest that year. And with, high, with, with Caiaphas being high priest that year, he was basically... Uh, the, the Roman spokesmanship. He was the, the in-between between the Jews and the Romans. That was the high priest that they had appointed. But we see that the Jews, they brought Jesus to Annas first. So that tells us a lot about what, who they thought was a high priest. So a big portion of our scripture today deals with uh, Jesus' his, his, his interaction with, with Annas and not Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas is also covered, but not with John. It's covered in Matthew, and we'll take a look at that. But it seems that the Jews still recognize Annas as a high priest, even though the Romans did not. And that's why the court proceedings started there at Annas' house. Now, Jesus, his arrest and his execution, the funny thing about it, it had already been predetermined. It had been planned. They were plotting to um, arrest him and execute him. And... It had been planned by the people who were in charge of the laws. Uh, Caiaphas and the other Jewish religious leaders had planned to arrest Jesus on, on false charges. And the thing is, though, is that a major, when we look at the justice system, a major principle to a healthy justice system is that a person is innocent until proven guilty. Well, that's not the way it was here. And that's why we can see this as a great injustice. This was an innocent man. And as I said before, there, there are degrees of innocence, so to speak, right? There's the creaturely innocence where someone accuses you of doing something and you didn't do that exact thing. We're innocent of that thing, but we're not innocent of all things. So here you have Jesus Christ who is truly innocent of all things, for he had not sinned against God. He had not broken any, any laws. And yet he was being tried as he, he had. So Jesus was completely, completely innocent. 
but they had already uh, found him guilty and they had already planned this whole arrest and this whole execution. Um, his capture and his guilty verdict had already been planned by Caiaphas himself. Uh, look at John 18, verse 14. That's why John mentions Caiaphas in verse 14. This is what he says. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, it's not a mistake that this verse is where it's at. John's reminding you what Caiaphas actually said before. And Caiaphas said this all the way back in John chapter 11. And this was a critical point when Caiaphas actually came out and told the other, the other uh, Jewish religious leaders this. He said this when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And that was a point where everything changed. They hated Jesus before, and they knew they needed to do something about him before. But when he raised Lazarus from the dead, at that point, they knew he needed to die. And it's actually covered in Scripture. Let's go ahead and take a look at it. Let's turn to John chapter 11. And I'm going to read for you verse 45 through 53, just so that we can get a good understanding of, of what was going on and why John mentioned what Caiaphas says all the way back here in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 45 to 53 says, Many of the Jews, therefore, and again, let me set this up for you. This is after Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. That was a big problem. So many of the Jews who were there as eyewitnesses, and then the word started to spread. So then everybody began to believe in him. What did it mean to believe in him? Believe that he was a son of God. So the Jewish religious leaders saw this as a big problem. Look at verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we going to do? Or what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now let's turn back to our passage in John 18. I think that's a critical verse in order for us to, to go back and read in order for us to understand why Caiaphas is mentioning the fact that, or why John is mentioning the fact that Caiaphas um, talked about this and why he mentioned Jesus um, all the way back in John chapter 11. This was not Caiaphas prophesying that Jesus would die for the sins of the nation, Caiaphas was basically saying it's better that he die instead of us suffer. Because if he continues like this, everyone who hears him and sees what he's doing and all the mighty works, they're going to start to follow him. They're going to start to follow him, and then there's going to be a revolt against the, the, the Roman government because they're going to want to make this guy a king. Remember, that's why the disciples, they struggled with that the whole time they were following Christ. 
They were like, oh, you know, yeah, he, he says he's the son of God, but he's going to be our next king and we're going to rule with him. Well, that's the same thing that Caiaphas and the Jewish religious leaders were concerned about, that Jesus would be made king and then there was going to be this battle with the Romans and they knew they could not, they could not fight against the Romans. And the Romans would come and take their people, take their nation, take their comforts, take their whatever it was, take it away from them. And that's when Caiaphas said, you know, y'all guys know nothing at all. We need to kill this. We need to kill this guy. It's better that he die than our nation be taken away from us from the Romans. And that's why John mentions that here. And then it tells us that at that point, they started to try to find a way to execute so it was already premeditated from their, uh, from their side that they were going to uh, hunt him down and they were going to execute him, even though they did not have a valid uh, charge against him. So Caiaphas's plan, it was political in nature. And according to Caiaphas, Jesus would die for the nation of Israel so that the Romans would not come and take away their land. And he had convinced the other Roman or he had convinced the others that the Romans would come and punish them. Now, what's interesting about that is that Caiaphas, who held the office of the high priest, he was actually supposed to be God's representative here on earth to the people. That's pretty ironic, right? That God's representatives, representative to the people was planning to kill the Son of God. And he was actually, he was willing to condemn a righteous person in order to maintain his status among the people. And as you look at that, that was actually in direct conflict with the word of God. Listen to this out of Proverbs seventeen fifteen: He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. This is the exact same thing that Caiaphas was participating in. When we look at the depravity of man here, using Caiaphas and the religious leaders as an example, it shows us that the depravity of man um, shows us what the heart is capable of, what the human heart is capable of. What the heart is capable of when it has not been trained by the Lord. See, man can and does worship his comforts. That's what the Jewish religious leaders were, that's what they were concerned about. Their comforts would be taken away. Their positions would be uh, taken away. Their security would be taken away. We need to be careful because we can worship our comforts. We can worship our security. We can worship where we get our sustenance from. We can worship our pursuit of progress. Our hearts can get tangled up in that and we can worship that. But we have to remember that our hearts have been trained by God to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. God has saved us from our depravity. If it were not for God, we would be lost and completely lost doing what ought not be done. But God in his grace keeps us from that. He keeps us from that through his means of grace, through laws that he establishes, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, through so many different ways he does that, but he does that. And though we sin, we are not given over to our sin. 
And that is a wonderful and great grace from God that we need to celebrate. But going back to the people here and now that we're talking about in our passage, it's easy to see that because Jesus was set up, the court proceedings themselves were a complete sham. Nothing was, nothing was done right, and most, mostly everything that was done was illegal. See, there was a, a glaring unfairness about the trial that was the fact that it was held in the middle of the night. I mean, even today, there are no trials that are held in the middle of the night. You can go back to the early 1900s and you see trials held in the middle of the night and all that was for what? So that man's depravity can do what ought not be done. Convicting people who shouldn't have been convicted, murdering people who shouldn't be murdered. But all that was done under the cover of night so that their deeds would not be seen. And that's exactly what's going on here. They're bringing Jesus. They arrest him in the middle of the night. They bring him to this, uh, to, first of all, to uh, Annas' house to start the proceedings. And uh, it's, it's there in the middle of the night, and they're trying to get him rushed through. Why? So that people wouldn't find out, so that everybody wouldn't find out, and so that they could get him to Pilate as soon as possible, Pontius Pilate as soon as possible. Now, the legal proceedings were not only unorthodox, as I said before, they were illegal as well. This is what R.C. Sproul says about it. He says, there is an abundance of Jewish testimony that the prisoners, that the prisoner who was on trial was never required to testify or answer questions. Instead, witnesses were called to speak at the trial. Witnesses against the accused and witnesses on the behalf of the accused. Now, the procedure was this. First, the witness on behalf of the accused would be called to testify to the integrity of the one who was on trial. Then the witnesses against the accused spoke. But all these procedures seem to have been dispensed with Annas as he proceeded to interrogate Jesus. So Annas wasn't even supposed to be talking to Jesus about anything. He wasn't supposed to be questioning him. Witnesses were supposed to be brought in for him. And then after they spoke and spoke to his integrity, then afterward, other witnesses would be brought in. So in reality, Jesus' disciples should have all been there. They should have all been allowed to be in there to speak to his integrity. And then after that, then everybody else who had issues with against him would, would speak. And that was considered a fair trial, and we practice that today. That's what should have happened, but that's not what happened. Then look at verses 20 to 21. So Annas is questioning Jesus, and after questioning Jesus about his disciples and then about his teaching, Jesus reminds Annas how the trial is supposed to be conducted. Verse 21, he says, why do you ask me? Oh, that verse makes sense now, right? Why are you asking me? You shouldn't be asking me these questions. Right? So he says, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So sometimes we, would, we could look at this passage and we could say, oh, Jesus, he's just being difficult. He's being difficult. He's not being, you know, a good citizen. He's trying to give them a hard time. No, it's the exact opposite. Jesus is reminding them of the way the court is supposed to be held. 
he's pointing out this unfair treatment. He's like, why are you asking me? No, no. Ask those who have, who have been around me, who I've, who, whom I've taught. They're the ones that you should be asking. In response to Jesus' requesting that the trial proceedings be conducted legally, look at verse 22. One of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? So Annas is speaking directly to Jesus, interrogating him. Jesus points out, that's not right for you to do. And right after that moment, when you look at the fact that he was struck with his hand, in the Greek that translates to hitting somebody with an open palm. So basically he was slapped by an officer who was standing next to Jesus. Jesus is trying to get this train on the back on the track, and right when he does that, somebody slaps him. So already we see how this trial is playing out, and it's nothing like it should be. But Jesus again pointed out the injustice of the legal proceedings in verse 23. He says this, after he is slapped, he says, If what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? In other words, you shouldn't be doing that. That's not legal for you to do. There's no way you should be hitting somebody in the court of law. But they weren't worried about doing things legally. Again, this was a great injustice. But when we look at the injustice that, was, that took place against Jesus, it only increased from here. It did not decrease. It only increased when Jesus appeared before Caiaphas. See, after Annas could not break Jesus, and after he could not find any real fault in him, he got tired of him, and he sent him over to Caiaphas. And basically, he sent Jesus over with his approval to continue these, these proceedings, and that's, we see that in verse 24. Now, as I told you before, John does not record the events that occurred when Jesus stood before Caiaphas, but they are captured in other places. If you are taking notes, I'm not going to go back and read these, but Matthew 26, verses 57 through 68. That's one passage that covers Jesus before Caiaphas and what happened to him there. Matthew 26, verses 57 through 68. What I'm going to do for you this morning is I'm going to sum it up for you. Basically, when he got there in front of Caiaphas, false witnesses were brought in. They didn't bring in anybody to talk about his integrity like they were supposed to. Instead, they brought in false witnesses. They were brought forward. And then Jesus was actually violently attacked by bystanders in front of Caiaphas. It says that they spat in his face. It said that they struck him and that they slapped him. Evidently, there was a difference between him striking him and slapping him. Striking him probably pointed to hitting him with an object. And slapping him, of course, we know what that meant. But that's the way he was actually treated in front of Caiaphas. Again, very illegal, very wrong, a real injustice. And then Jesus gets taken in front of Pontius Pilate. Now bear with me because I'm setting up, I'm setting up something here. 
I have to lay out everything that was done against Jesus and how this was a true injustice, and then we'll, we'll get the purpose of, of this passage. John, we go back to John. John skips to the praetorium, the, the governor's headquarters of Pilate. And in verse 28, he tells us that the Jewish religious leaders themselves did not go into the governor's headquarters. So they come back from Caiaphas, and they take him to Pontius Pilate. Caiaphas says, all right, we have a charge. We have a charge against him. Just take him to Pontius Pilate. We're going to continue on with this legal uh, court case. And uh, so John comes back and verse 28 tells us that when they get there, the Jewish religious leaders would not go in. And here's another quote from R.C. Sproul to help us understand exactly what was going on there. He says this. To enter the pagan residence of Pilate would have brought them into defilement, preventing them from participating in the whole feast. So these men, remember, they were celebrating the Passover. So these men were to avoid any ritual defilement, even while they carried out the most vile act of human history. As they delivered the Lamb of God to the slaughter, they made sure their hands were ceremonially clean. I think that's a, <laughs> that, that is a, a strong statement. That is something that is so ironic, so sad. They're handing over the Lamb of God, their Savior, and yet they're doing it in their minds with clean hands. They're forsaking the Son of God for their tradition. The Passover feast that they were actually celebrating was before them. Jesus is the Passover feast. Standing before them and they didn't get it. Thank the Lord that you do get it. Otherwise, we'd be like them. Since the Jews were unwilling to come to Pilate, Scripture tells us that he went to them. And it seems as if Pilate was bothered by this whole thing. He comes to them and he's, he's like, what accusations do you bring against this man? That's his question. That's his question to the Jewish religious leaders. And then we see that they answered Pilate arrogantly. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him to you. Notice that they didn't have a charge to give at this point. In other words, they're telling Pilate, hey, just trust us. This guy did something wrong. Just do your job. We're bringing him to you. Now you do your job. Make him guilty. That's basically what they were doing. And we can see that Pilate tried to wash his hands of this case very early on. We know ultimately that he washed his hands of this case, but he tried to do this very early on. He tells them, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. Why are you bothering me? And then it finally came out. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And it was at that point where Pilate understood he could not wash his hands of this case at this point in time. He had to get involved. Either if Jesus was going to be set free or executed, he had to get involved. And we know that even though Jesus was innocent, the Jewish religious leaders sought to put him to death. 
Now, as we point out all this injustice, we have to understand all of it with the backdrop of the fact that this was the purpose and will of God. Once we begin to understand everything Jesus went through, then we'll begin to understand what he did for us. And the injustice that he suffered is a big part of that. I know we want to go straight to the cross most of the time. Or maybe before we even get to the cross, we'll, we'll start with the flogging. And we think, man, I can't believe what Jesus suffered on my, for my sake. The flogging, the crown of thorns, the cross itself. But we have to, we have to start, we have to back up with the Passion Week and we have to talk about the injustice that he suffered. Can you imagine what that felt like? I mean, imagine when you suffer injustice. As I said before, you're not completely innocent. I'm not completely innocent. This was somebody who was. Not only that, all things were made through him. All things were made for him. So the, the, the creatures that were made through him and for him were the ones who were treating him unjustly, <laughs> accusing him of something he did not do. So that we can know what Jesus was going through, even though we will truly never know, at least we can come to a general understanding of it. But it all had a point. Jesus was the Lamb of God who, was to, who would take away the sins of the world. Remember when John the Baptist recognized Jesus? That's exactly what he said. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is how he's doing it. It wasn't just a cross. His whole life was given for us. He suffered greatly for us. And there was a point to it so that we would not suffer in that way. So that we would not have to face the wrath of God. See, in all this unfairness that was pointed out, that happened to Christ, we must notice, first of all, what he doesn't do. Because these are things, whenever we suffer injustice, there are certain things that we do by nature. First of all, he doesn't fight fire with fire. That's the first thing we do. Somebody does this wrong, you're going to feel my wrath, right? I'm going to fight fire with fire. I am going to respond evil for evil. I'm going to get you. Jesus doesn't do that. And we saw he had the, he had the power to do it when they came to arrest him. They asked, where's Jesus? Here I am. Boom, everybody fell down. He had the power to do it. But he did nothing but the Father's will. So he doesn't fight fire with fire or evil for evil. We too must understand that two wrongs do not make a right. Second thing he doesn't do, he doesn't whine about his unfairness or he doesn't whine about how unfair things uh, seem to be. And we have some major pity parties. When we are treated unjustly, whenever we are treated unfairly. We too must understand that God has brought about all things into our lives with both care and mercy. Even though things aren't pleasant and we're not destroyed. Why? Because God is involved. 
And even the worst thing that happens to us, if we are his, it's done to us and given to us with care and mercy. He also doesn't give in to temptation to do things his own way. I don't know about you, but I've been there before where I get to the point where it's like, you know what? It's, it's time to do things my way. You know, this whole walking according to the word of God thing is just not working out for myself right now. I, I, I want to put on my flesh and I just want to take care of business the way I want to take care of business. And I, I know it's going to make me, it may not be the best thing, but it's going to make me feel so good. That's a great temptation that we all face. And many succumb to it. And then we come out to find out that it doesn't feel so good in the long run. Because then we have to deal with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And we have to deal with the discipline of God. But he doesn't fall into that temptation to do things his way. We too must understand that our own way is not the only way or even the best way God knows best. He doesn't give up and he doesn't give in. We too must understand that our earthly fight is not over until the Lord calls us home. He doesn't place blame on anyone else concerning his unfavorable, unfavorable circumstance. We too must understand that through the good and the bad, we live for Christ. See, there's, there's a lot of practical things that we can learn here. But again, if I just give you the practical, I, I do not give you enough. See, also, in all this unfairness, that has been pointed out that occurred to Christ or that happened to Christ, we must notice the sovereignty of God and all the sufferings of Christ. Everything that had happened, look at verse 32, John 18, 32. Everything that had happened, John 18, 32 says this, was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what, what kind of death he was going to die. That verse is there to bring us great comfort and great hope. To calibrate us to what was going on here. Because if, if we just read this passage, it, it seems like things are out of God's control. It, it seems like things are not going as planned and Jesus is losing. And John reminds us, no, no. He's not losing. Everything that was happening was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This was not a surprise for God. He was not overwhelmed. This was happening. It was happening by his hand. See, in the moment of all these injustices, it's hard to remember that Jesus had already prophesied that these things would happen before they happened. In fact, if we go back and look at the Gospels, there's several different places where Jesus prophesies his death. There were many. I picked three of them just to point out. First of all, John 12, 32, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That was John 12, 32. And then in Matthew 20, 18 through 19, he says, See, 
we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. That's real prophecy. You see how detailed that was and how it happened? That's real prophecy. That's not the prophecy that we hear today. This came to pass, and it came to pass exactly the way it was prophesied. Matthew 26, 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. There's example over, after example in the Gospels of Jesus prophesying his death. Well, when we remember that, we go back and look at John 18, 32. It gives us hope that we need to believe that Jesus wasn't defeated, but rather he was sacrificed. This was him giving himself over for us. And everything that happened, God was in control. So Jesus was suffering injustice at the hands of man so that the elect of God would be justified. And I tell you what, if you want to talk about prophecy and how accurate God, God's word is, even though it happened years before, Isaiah 53. Listen to this. Isaiah 53, I want to read just a, a, a section of this chapter for you. And it's talking about this very moment in time when Jesus was given over for the people. Look how accurate this is. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces or hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Man, that's beautiful. And that's talking about this Time right now in John chapter 18 from 18 all the way through 21 there was a purpose to what was happening here you see one thing that we have to understand is since he died for our sins we are just as guilty as the Jewish religious leaders and his blood is, in, is on our hands. We must understand that. His blood is on every creature's hands. And the only way to, to, to wash our hands and to clean our hands is to actually to believe in him as the son of God. And to believe in him as our savior. At that point, he becomes our savior. At that point, we are saved by the grace of God. We are cleansed by his blood instead of being convicted by it. 
when I look at this whole story, I, I, I have one major response, and I hope you do too, and it's, it's, a, it's a response of praise. I praise the Father for giving over the Son to die in our place. I praise the Son who was able and willing to suffer injustice at the hands of man so that his own could be justified before God. As we celebrate Christmas, as we celebrate Christmas, it's appropriate for us to understand the gift that was given to us. What was done for us? The God who loves us. We are people who do not deserve what we received. But we need to be people who are thankful for what we were given. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Our purpose is found in him now. I pray that you will consider that, that you will remember that. That every day you wake up, you remind yourself of that. You have received the greatest gift anyone could ever receive. Now you have been called to live for him. Let's pray.